This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode, we'll be speaking with noted chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We'll also be speaking to the producers of those ingredients about what makes them so great and why chefs use them in their kitchens. This week on Ingredient Insiders, Andrea, we will be talking about something super sweet, brown sugar. It's very timely because we're right, you know, going into baking season. The, the cooler weather is coming in. Isn't, I, I think every month is baking season. Every month is sugar season. Are you a big baker? I'm not, but I like sugar. and I Like you, know you have what? a sweet tooth? I do. I love sugar in all its forms. So if you were to pick like sweet versus savory, you would pick sweet or? No, I didn't say that. Okay. I do love sugar. Okay. What about you? I'm definitely more of a savory person. So I think I love like a, a chewy chocolate chip cookie with a sprinkle of like sea salt on top. Um, just to kind of cut that sweetness. Yeah. But I, I definitely love sweets. Who doesn't you, love sweets? You know what else? Sugar isn't just for sweets, too. The, what you don't realize yeah. is that sugar's in a lot of things. Like, I'll give a small example. When I like to cook glazed carrots, mm-hmm. like I'll boil them first, and then I'll put a little butter in the pan, and then I'll add a little sugar just to kind of like get that glaze when the sugar caramelizes and melts. Yeah. I use uh, brown sugar actually in a rub when I'm making ribs. Yes. So I'll take, you know, a whole bunch of different spices, paprika, chili powder, crushed red pepper flakes, pepper, salt, and then I'll mix that with sugar and rub it all over the, the ribs and then braise them in the oven and then finish them on the grill. And that sugar caramelizes, gets a little crispy, sweet, salty. Yeah. So good. Talk to me about that. I braise them in Coca-Cola. No, there's nothing wrong with that. I like it. A famous chef, Alex Lee, once told me about using Coca-Cola. We have an amazing chef that's going to be joining us in a little bit, Ozzie Bellamy. Great story. Yeah, she's got a great story. She makes these killer blondies, brownies. Um, Her business is called The Blondery. The perfect blondie is chewy. It's rich. It's simple. It's straightforward. And it reminds you of something that someone baked for you. We'll also be joined by Mitchell Cruzy from Wholesome Sweeteners to talk about their amazing brown sugar and really, you know, what they're doing for the sugar community. They are, you know, a fair trade company and they really, they care a lot about their farmers and their farmers' families. Yeah, it's just a better sugar. Yeah, so in total, we impact about 35,000 farmers and families. Particularly home consumers, when they think about sugar, they walk in the supermarket, they, they don't give it a lot of thought. I love the fact that the Wholesome products are socially responsible for one they're also there's a it's a whole different level of quality that we're talking about here oh yeah um, the way that they're produced this episode is in partnership with the chef's warehouse and produced by hey now media and today on our episode we're going to be talking about light brown sugar with one of New York's great chefs, Azareus Bellamy of Blondery. We're so excited to talk to her today about brown sugar, why she chose it, what inspires her. I actually don't have much of a sweet tooth. You know, I've had the opportunity to try her blondies and they're they're awesome. I do feel that there's a lot on the market that aren't um, well-balanced sweets. Balance. And I feel like Blondery, that's what we try to do is create textural sweet, salty mm-hmm. things. <laughs> what is the perfect blondie? The perfect blondie. So I think a lot of people say they don't know what a blondie is, but typically you do. It's just very forgotten about. 
So I noticed a lot of bakeries, they do sell blondies and it, it's usually paler in color. It doesn't look like it's chocolate and it's usually dry. But ours are. <laughs> <laughs> ours are made with a butterscotch base. So it gives it that like chewy depth, boil the brown sugar and the butter together. Is that um, why you wanted to talk about? Yes, because that's sugar. the that's the start is the butter and the brown sugar. Then we add in all of our other things. We have I don't know how many flavors we have now, at least eight core flavors. We're adding new ones all the time. And the perfect blondie is chewy. It's rich. It's simple. It's straightforward. And it reminds you of something that someone baked for you. That's my goal, is I, I want you it. to feel like I bake this for you. Still homemade taste. You know? That's a beautiful thing. I mean, butterscotch, as soon as you started talking about butterscotch, I started salivating. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I think about my grandmother. Always had like candies or whatever. Yes. I don't know. I, I associate butterscotch with, with her. With those candies, right? Yeah. I was going to say wrapper. Werther's Originals. Yeah. yeah. Or the butterscotch candies. They're pretty delicious. And they're, Nothing they're reminiscent. Like Yes. Of something, right? I yeah. believe that good food either creates a memory or restores one, right? Yeah. So I feel like I, with Blondery, that's why I don't do too many wacky and wild flavors. My approach is just more, I want this to either remind you of something you've had or be the best of whatever it is that you've had. So if it's a cinnamon sugar blondie, I want it to be the best cinnamon sugar blondie you've ever had. So brown sugar is essentially sugar that is uh, molasses is 10% added. usually for the light brown. Yes. Yes. So you, like, do you use light brown or dark brown? Or? Light brown. Okay. Dark brown, we tried. It's too too much depth. Got it. Because if we want to add strawberry, like we have a strawberry rosé, if we use dark brown, you it would just taste molasses, which is not bad. It's just we want to add uh, different flavors. It's like I think this is fascinating because I I bake a little bit at home from oh, time to time, but not know. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but the fact that there's such a difference and thought process around there's a place for brown sugar versus granulated sugar, and mm -hmm. but really that there's that fine a difference. Oh yeah, just the fact that you could have chosen any ingredient on the planet. And you wanted to talk about light brown sugar <laughs> specifically. It says a lot to me. I love it. Yeah. I, I think that sugar gets a bad rap, um, especially in America, based on the fact that uh, the slave trade was based around sugar cane and harvesting it. It was really interesting. I went to the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Just seeing like those sugar kettles and like connecting all those dots for me was really impactful to know that like my ancestors at one point were enslaved to bring in this product that I now am making a lot of money off of. I think they would be very proud of me. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> There's power there. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I also, uh, in researching light brown sugar, I read that in the late 1800s, they were actually putting out communication not to eat brown mm -hmm. sugar. It can make you sick. It contained germs because it wasn't as refined, right? Exactly. Yeah. Refined sugar was the only way, you know, brown sugars were bad. We it, go back and forth, right? Yeah. Because remember, now we have raw sugar mm -hmm. again, and people are like, yeah, we love raw sugar. Yeah, sugar in the raw. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Turbinado, all that. Yeah, the muscovados. Yep. So is there an actual a physical location of the bakery There's where people can go, or is everything oh. shipped? Everything is shipped. Everything is shipped, Okay. We do pop-ups. We'll do pop-ups at West Elm, Bloomingdale's. I love the packaging. It looks Thank like you. jewelry. 
And yes. I think it makes it <laughs> or makeup, right? Yeah, like it just yeah. makes it feel special. Did you think about that? Was that, you know, something that was deliberate? Yeah, very much so. I wanted something that felt like a gift, but was also practical in that it kept the blondie secure and intact during shipment. The box that I found ended up being exactly a quarter of a sheet tray of blondies. I was like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> it was meant to be. So you've been around long before COVID, oh, yeah. long before yeah. direct-to-consumer shipping I was started. In, it, I was in alignment yeah. when COVID started. So what like, happened oh, Yeah, what happened when COVID hit? Was that, <laughs> yeah. you know, as bad as COVID was for most of the world, was this a boon for yeah. you as far as direct-to-consumer? Yes. I empathize with all the, the other companies that have gone out of business or have suffered losses but I am also very thankful to say that my business was boosted by the Black Lives Matter movement, I believe, by COVID, and also by me already being prepared. What's it like working direct to consumer where you're getting a lot of feedback or? Oh, yes. Yeah? They, they think that they know me, <laughs> my customers, and they do because I share so much. You know, I develop a relationship with them. So it's been great. I love owning that relationship and being able to communicate with them directly. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, of course, as you get larger, there comes some decisions that have to be made. So it was like Blondery by Osiris Bellamy. Now it's just Blondery. So I'm, I'm slowly starting to let go of the reins. I have five employees now, so it's not I'm not doing the baking personally anymore, which is great. Yeah, you're um, okay with that? You're, you, I'm okay. Your hands slightly removed. Control. Yeah. Well, because you know what I get to do now? I just get to test some of the new part. flavors yeah. and stuff. What are your best sellers? The pecan and salted caramel, the birthday cake variety box. So that has four different blondies in it. It has our birthday cake blondie, the pecan and salted caramel blondie, the cinnamon sugar blondie, and the Brooklyn blackout blondie. There are six pieces of each, so 24 total. People go crazy over that. And then now, I didn't even expect this cake. <laughs> This 11-layer cake that I made during the pandemic on Instagram Live, raffled it off for 200 and something dollars, is now one of our best sellers. And I just, I never thought that people would buy a cake that cost that much. Yeah. It's a six-inch cake. It's not huge. And we it's just did a collab with Oishi. Do you guys know who that is? The strawberries? Oh, yes. The Japanese strawberries. We just did a collab with them for the 11-layer cake. Sold out twice. I bought them two years ago and I always remembered them. I was like, I have to put them in something. Someone needs to know about this. Perfect strawberry. Perfect. Have you seen these, Andrea? I haven't. I, they come in their own little They're traveling compa compartment. It's for six of them. I've yeah. seen like the Harry's berries. Those are delicious. But, but the Oishi, the diamonds. They're the white truffles of Yes, it's the omakase berry from Japan. A guy brought the seeds over and now is vertically growing them in a greenhouse in New York. But that's a whole other conversation. If you have you been to Japan? Get them on here. Not yet. I'm I'm going. There. Andrew, have you been to Japan? <laughs> I have not. It's Japan on the list. has everything great. Fr everything great. <laughs> yes. But I have to tell you, the fruit in Japan alone is worth the the plane ticket to Tokyo. Yeah. In the large department stores, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, Bloomingdale's, the Bloomingdale's of Tokyo, if you go in the basement and there's about five different, you know, there's Saks Fifth Avenue, there's Bloomingdale's, there's Macy's even. In the basement of all of these stores are these amazing food courts mm. and they all have a fruit section. Like a fruit because, stand? Yeah, but that's not being nice. Okay. 
they they are like Rolls Royce dealerships of fruit. Yeah, fruit gifting in Japan and Asia is a big thing. Yeah. So you have, I mean, I can show you pictures that I took of $80, $100 peaches, yeah. of bunches of grapes that were three or $400, yeah. of wow. melons, of and, so, and the strawberries too. It's fascinating. My so sister, $40 doesn't seem that bad. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's a bar- <laughs> It's actually a bargain. Yeah. My sister lives in Japan and she would always rave about the fruit. It's incredible. Because I'm from California, so I miss that. Yeah. Like being in New York. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hayward, California. So it's right next to Oakland. Yeah. The East Bay. I know well because the Chef's Warehouse, our original North California warehouse, used to be in Hayward. Really? Yeah. Now it's in Union City, not too far away. Yeah, that's so but funny. But yeah, in the East Bay. Not far from Brentwood, California, where you know our friends at Frog Hollow make I'm amazing on their, peaches. I'm on their monthly subscription. Oh, well, you're lucky. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, I just Farmer got Farmer Al is, uh, he, he's grown some amazing peaches <laughs> amazing. and stone fruit. Yes. What so brought you to New York from California? I was living in Napa. I was working at uh, Bouchon and an earthquake, 7.8 earthquake happened. And I lived in downtown Napa, which was the epicenter. My apartment was destroyed. Wow. wow. And um, I had to move out. And at the time, TK, Thomas Keller, had a um, bed and breakfast he was working on. So they let me stay there for a few weeks while I figured out what Mm -hmm. I was going to do. Coincidentally, they had an open position at Rock Center. And I was like, I'm going. And within two months. You just packed up and... I sold everything. (laughs) I was like, I'm going. I'm leaving. Wait, I want to back up even further. So you grew up in Hayward. How did you get into the restaurant world or cooking or baking? Yeah. I saw Johnson and Wales. Johnson and Wales, but you too. Yeah. Providence. Oh, really? Yeah. Me too. (laughs) Before that, though, my family owns restaurants in the Bay Area. It's called Everett and Jones Barbecue. At the height, they had 11 locations. Wow. Um, My grandmother started it. She moved from Louisiana to California with her two kids and built this company. And they still have, I think, four locations. They're opening up a new one in a casino next year. Nice. Very excited about that. But yeah, I was always a family baker. And then I went to Johnson & Wells and then I... And then how did, when did you get involved with uh, Thomas Keller? I was a pastry and entrepreneurship major. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I want to bake. I want to own the best bakery in the world. So I need to go work for the best bakery in the world. And I had no idea about Thomas Keller or Michelin stars. No clue. Even going through school, we didn't talk about it that much. And I just asked around. They were like, Thomas Keller. And I remember getting a stage. And I was enamored. <laughs> like, I was like, this is like watching a ballet, like watching them work in such a small space. They were synchronized so well and it was so clean. It was so organized. And I love that everything was not ripped. We cut everything and we didn't call it scraps. We called it trim. I just, I was enamored. And then I just dove in. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And this was in Yountville. Yes. And this was at the French Laundry or Bouchon? I was at Bouchon. At Bouchon, okay. Staged at French Laundry. Awesome. And ad hoc. They let you move around. Yeah. Once you're in that family, you can go and learn the different places. And then from there, straight to New York. To Rock Center. Then Per Se. I wanted to work at Per Se so bad. Like, I was like, I have to do. Because at the time, French Laundry was undergoing their their big renovation. So they weren't hiring. They weren't bringing anyone on. The kitchen was already super small they were making it smaller because of the construction and rock center ironically it didn't feel as challenging as yountville 
Because Yonville, we were making like the puff pastry for French Laundry and we made the laminated brioche for ad hoc on top of all of the things that the bakery did, the retail, the catering. And then Rock Center, it was kind of a more relaxed environment and it wasn't challenging. That's so I was like, I have to go to Per Se. Like maybe that's where it's at. And I remember them letting me go. I staged there and I was very discouraged because there was no one who looked like me. The people who did look like me were dishwashers. And that's something I had seen a lot, especially in California. And then I remember Thomas Keller posted a picture on his Instagram of his, no, it wasn't even Instagram then, it was Twitter, <laughs> of his top leadership. And they were all white men. And I was like, oh, this might be impossible for me to get to where I want to go. I wanted to work my way up. I wanted to become like his pastry chef. I think it was like a moment of being kind of heartbroken because mm -hmm. of thinking like of all the adversity I had. Yeah. We we're not even talking about what I went through in Yountville, but with the, the lot of attack. How long were you there? Three and a half years. That's a long time. It was a long time. Was that like the straw that broke the camel's back that you that were? That picture. Yeah. That picture, because I had been thinking about it. And I've, I had been asking my manager at the time, Allie, um, she was his pastry chef. And I was like, what do I need to do to get to Per Se? What skills do I need? Mm -hmm. Who do I have to become to yeah. be this person who works there? And she's like, well, you have to take a pay cut. Fine. I'll go back down to a Comey. I'll figure it out. I'm in New York, renting a room. I'll figure it out. I felt like I did all of the things that she was telling me to do. Yeah. And it still wasn't getting me anywhere. So when I saw that picture, she wasn't even in the picture. <laughs> I was like, oh, this might be time to see what else is out there. For people who didn't read the story in the New York Times, in January in the New York Times, I saw a very powerful and a great story. It was written by Corsha Wilson, and the headline was How High-End Restaurants have failed black female chefs. It was obviously very timely. It's a really powerful piece. And I know, Andrea, you read it as well. Yep. Take us into that story. You know, it took a year to write. Yeah. It was about how, as black women in kitchens, sometimes our experience, I cannot speak for all, but sometimes our experience can be challenging because we don't necessarily have mentorship because simply people don't believe in us. They don't believe we can do it. We're angry. We're... All of our experiences, all the women who were in the article, Tanya Holland, I think the common thread was we're overachievers and we wanted more for ourselves. And we kind of hit a wall in our industry because people want to work with people they are familiar with, you know, they have a rapport with. And I talk different. That doesn't mean that anything, but maybe I talk different or I look different. Or when I say certain things, it may come off a different way. You know, in the industry, they don't necessarily hire women in leadership positions, especially Black women, because it's just different. How did that story come about? I was introduced to Korsha by my friends at Burlap and Barrel. They thought that it would be good for us to connect. We just started talking. And as things come up, they come up. It was a long process. We talked numerous times. She was very diligent in getting her facts straight. She called me, texted me. It was a story I've kept but never shared. So when she said that she was doing a story with three or four other Black women, I have to do it. This is a story that, like you said, was very timely. I wanted to do it from a place of encouragement. It wasn't to shame anyone. It wasn't even like, I wouldn't even say to hold them accountable. <laughs> like, it was more so like, there are people who look like me, who are still doing this. So be encouraged, it'll get better. We've talked about this on other episodes of Ingredient Insiders. The kitchen is not an easy place. 
for, for anyone. anybody to work yeah. in. Yeah. And for anyone, you know, you start to to talk about kitchens are highly misogynistic. They can be racist. They can be a lot of things. They can be so many. Nothing <laughs> <Hot>. really, <laughs> other than the food that comes out of a great kitchen, they're not pleasant places a lot of times. Right. Yeah. Did TK ever reach out? No. I would love to talk to him though. I want to write him a letter and just ask if we can sit down and chat. Because I think the country needs to see me and him talk. Absolutely. Right? Like, I feel like that would be a, like, a healing moment for all of us. Because he and I are very different, but we're also very similar. I think we're very similar. I'd like to hear the conversation. And I think <laughs> it should be, I think it should happen. TK, if you're listening. Yeah. I would love to chat. I'm a big fan. That's why I started there. Yeah. So, like I said, the article for me wasn't about holding him accountable. It was about giving encouragement to people who may be in similar situations, that it gets better. And although that's an industry that may or may not change, you can create your own lane in it. The industry hasn't changed much. And now we're talking about VCs yeah, being and being a Black woman. We're talking about investment and being a Black woman. Talking about even kitchen space and being a Black woman. I was this close to closing on kitchen space and he backed out. And who knows why? But you always think. I don't know. Was this before you? This is recently. Wow. <laughs> like last year. <laughs> wow. So I... I have risen above it in the sense of I don't, I'm not letting any of it stop me. Yeah. Because it can't stop me. I've proven that to myself. I just move around. I maneuver around. I'll find another kitchen space mm -hmm. and I'll still be great. And my team is still going to be great. So that, you know, speaks for itself. Thank you. Is it Blondery.com? Blondery.com. At Blondie on Instagram. And I just also want to mention that I am building a team and I am looking for kitchen space. So awesome. We're hiring and we're looking for kitchen space. <laughs> we're honored that you were able to join us today. It was great. Thank you, guys. Thank you so awesome. much. This episode is sponsored by Wholesome Sweeteners, producing fair trade sugar from around the globe. Now we're joined here today by Mitchell Cruzy from Wholesome Sweetener. Welcome, Mitchell. Thank you. Excited to be here. Mitchell is in Colorado, Andrea. Lucky Mitchell. The Wholesome Sweetener is based, you said, in Texas? Our headquarters are based in Houston, Texas. That's where our founder, Nigel Willerton, established it. And we have an innovation center, which leads a lot of our new product development here in Boulder, Colorado. Nice. So tell us a little bit about the history of the company and what makes you guys unique. Wholesome Sweeteners was founded in 2001 by our founder, Nigel Willerton. British originally, he came to the United States and really what he saw in the sugar making process, you know, globally was that sugar was low quality and the farmers were not treated in a kind of equitable, fair, you know, respectful manner. So he really saw an opportunity in the United States to bring a the highest quality sugars to the country. And then secondly, sugars that actually make an impact on those farmer communities that grow and harvest the sugar. And he did that through fair trade certification. What fair trade is all about is it seeks to pay a premium to sugarcane growers. And those premiums go to helping to support those farmers communities. They vote on what to do with those fair trade premiums in a democratic process. Oftentimes it's going to, you know, building schools in their communities, helping to drill new water wells, helping to buy equipment for their farms. It goes to kind of enriching and building and strengthening these communities, whether they're in 
you know, Brazil, Paraguay, Colombia, et cetera. That's really so this awesome. Was, it's a great story and one that wholesome, you know, we continue to kind of take that that mission and purpose into many new sweetener categories. How many different farmers are you sourcing sugar from? Yeah. So in total, we impact about 35,000 farmers and families. So 35,000 people really kind of get that positive impact from Wholesome. Granted, you know, within sugar, that's probably in the high 20s, but we all support many beekeepers in the Brazilian rainforest through fair trade, as well as in Mexico through our agave businesses. Yeah, I was I was looking at, you know, your portfolio, and I know one of the biggest items that we sell from you guys at Chefs is the agave. We love that product. Very on trend with consumers, unrefined, plant-based, natural sweetener. And you know, oftentimes in my own house, it's just, it's incredibly versatile. It can be used in the morning to sprinkle on your kid's oatmeal. It bakes really well. And then, you know, to help parents get to sleep after a long day with the children, it also just works really well in cocktails. It makes an awesome, mm-hmm. simple syrup. So in talking about brown sugar, I mean, I think most people, they have a kind of a picture in their mind. I know Wholesome has a fair trade brown sugar. What makes it different than conventional brown sugar that you would find at the supermarket? Stepping back, brown sugar, you take regular cane sugar, blend in rich molasses, which gives the end product that really rich, dark, caramelly flavor and really steps up the quality of your baked goods. Conventional sugar, you know, it comes from these huge plantations where farmers are often not treated justly. And then the sugar to bring it to that very white crystalline look that we see, it's filtered through bone char, which kind of bleaches out that molasses. But what that is bleaching out is also taste, you know, wholesome sugar leaves a little bit of that molasses in each of the crystal, which is why when you compare it to, you know, just regular conventional sugar, we have a little bit of a richer caramel color to it. And that's what really lends a richness of taste to anything you use it with. Secondly, conventional brown sugar, you know, the white cane sugar, and then they spray on molasses. Wholesome, however, we use much more molasses and it's actually blended into the sugar, which gives it just that really, if you've ever poured it out onto a table, it's this rich liquidy product that, you know, we're so excited when we hear back from, you know, chefs and home bakers about how well it bakes, because it really, you will notice a difference given it has that higher moisture content in the baked good. What are some of the the recipes that you're hearing the chef's you know, really uh, benefit from your brown sugar? We actually offer two brown sugars. We offer a light brown as well as a dark brown. So light brown really works well in a broad range of baking applications. So think of cupcakes, adding a little bit more richness there, or now we were in the holiday season, you know, a lot of holiday baking, brown sugar will help kind of step up a lot of baked goods giving it a little bit more rich caramel flavor. Our brown sugar really helps with, think of those very spicy holiday flavors you might be incorporating into your routine. Think of gingerbread, think of, you know, a a dark molasses cookie. That's where the really, that dark brown sugar shines and will give it, you know, kind of a much more richer, almost mild spice flavor to baked goods. Yeah, there's definitely savory applications too. I know, John, I make these uh, ribs and I use a lot of brown sugar in the rub. Yeah. Do you ever use like savory brown sugar applications? I do. I've been sitting here quietly because I'm so fascinated by this whole conversation. So yes, I do use sugar in a variety of ways at home. Our brown sugar works really, really great in like a barbecue sauce or kind of a rich summer sauce. I mean, I make a homemade teriyaki sauce, which Mm -hmm. is really soy sauce, some citrus usually, and brown sugar, you know, melted into that and then glazed 
glaze it over chicken or salmon or, or other stuff. We sell this great product at Chef's Warehouse and I, I've always known, but I think learning a lot more, like, I don't know if I would buy conventional sugar anymore after having this conversation. Like, I think I might be a, a convert. Wow. Good. As you should. Yeah. Can we find yes. wholesome sweetener sugars in our supermarkets? Absolutely. Yep. We're carried in all regions across the United States. You know, whether you're looking in your traditional grocery channel, um, your kind of local grocer, or if a Whole Foods sprouts, we're also carried there. So many different stores, as well as you can find us online. Can you tell us more about the portfolio of the products? Staying with sugar for a moment. So certainly we have our cane sugar and then our light and dark brown sugar. But then for those, you know, home bakers or chefs, we have a powdered sugar within our portfolio as well. Really how that sets itself apart from other powdered sugars on the market is it's, as you know, powdered sugar is very fine. We grind ours actually to twice the fineness of conventional um, powdered sugar. And what that results in is, you know, you're often using powdered sugar for frostings, et cetera. You have a much smoother texture to your frostings when you use that organic powdered sugar. Wow. Coffee connoisseurs out there or those looking to add a little bit extra flourish to a scone topping. We offer a raw cane sugar. That's a larger cane crystal. You may have seen that in the marketplace instead of the small crystal. It's kind of a, a little bit bigger crystal, takes great in coffee, rich brown color and great for toppings. We offer a coconut sugar as well as some other options within our, our sugar portfolio. What we is then coconut have sugar? A, coconut sugar is great. That's, you know, harvested from small farmers in Indonesia and you know, it's got a great backstory. You know, these farmers are actually, you know, harvesting the nectar from the flowers of the palm. You know, many people think coconut sugar comes from the coconut. It's actually from the nectar of the palm. And you harvest that nectar and then you boil it down in these dill pots in smaller farmers' communities. It has a really rich caramelly flavor. It's often a substitute for those who maybe are looking for something other than cane to be used in sauces or as a brown sugar substitute. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about all of Wholesome Sweeteners. You guys are you know, doing such great things for farmers and, and their communities. Thank you so much for being a great partner to the Chef's Warehouse. I mean, I think this conversation converted you and I just yeah. in 15 minutes of, of talking. It's a base. It's a component item. And not everybody gives a lot of thought to it um, when they buy it. I agree. But when you hear the story and when you learn about how, you know, all these positive attributes about it, it really, it makes a difference. You know, there's 35,000 families that it makes a difference to, but it really is just about the whole planet and everything. And so this is a great product. I'm I'm excited to uh, start baking with it at home. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Ingredient Insiders, where chefs talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.